It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Spiritual elevation comes at the strangest moments. Uh, and it came for me uh, about 10 years ago. I had one of those moments. New York Times columnist David Brooks remembers coming home from work in Maryland and seeing his kids playing outside. So I pull into the driveway and I see this tableau. All parents have seen it of just perfect family happiness. And I just sit there in the car looking at it through the windshield. And it's one of those moments when life and time feel like they're suspended. At that moment, he was overwhelmed with the kind of gratitude and grace that he says lifted him up spiritually. The same inspiration came when talking with people who radiated an inner light like the Dalai Lama. He set out to discover why such people had that light and how we can all try and achieve it. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Catholic writer Robert Spitzer says there are four levels of happiness, material pleasure, personal achievement or fame, doing good for others, and transcendence. David Brooks wondered how to move from levels 1 and 2 to 3 and 4. His book, The Road to Character, draws lessons from people who have reached those upper levels. In this episode, Brooks also explores the commitments to spouse or family, faith or philosophy, a community, and a career. He explores how to prioritize commitments and how to execute your top commitment. His talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival reveals what he's uncovered about a life well lived. He opens with a reference to his recent performance at the Ideas Festival's Comedy Night. One of the things I tried to explain to that crowd is I had just written a book on character, and writing a book on character uh, does not give you good character. Reading a book on character does not give you good character. Buying a book on character, on the other hand, uh, does give you good character. And what I tried to explain to that crowd was a life of spiritual ambition. Uh, I was born, like a lot of Jewish children, I was immaculately conceived. Uh, I was a little spiritually out of place as a child. I went, went to Grace Church School in Lower Manhattan. I was part of the all-Jewish boys davening choir at Grace. We would sing the hymns, but to square it with our religion, we wouldn't sing the word Jesus, so the volume would sort of drop down and come back up. Um, but I was spiritually ambitious. I thought I'd join a, re a religion, but I wanted to join at the top as deity. Uh, I thought that would be good. Um, but then when I was 18, um, the admissions officers at Columbia, Brown, and Wesleyan decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Uh, and my favorite thing about Chicago is it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, uh, and then I moved to New York and got shallow. I told the crowd I, I uh, started a business selling man bun toupees. Uh, you should come out to Aspen, where there's a certain creature I'm fascinated by uh, in Aspen, who are these old guys who come out here to retire, and they're billionaires, and they've just decided to not die. Uh, and so they hire these six personal trainers. They're popping Cialis like breath mints. Uh, they're shrunk down to like 90 pounds, five foot two. And if you're hiking up a mountain, they zoom right by you, past, little waves of contempt going past them. It's like being passed like by a little iron raisinette going up the mountain there. Um, and then finally, as I got older, I got a little more feminine and spiritually open. I'm the only man in America to have read that book, Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, I was lactating by age, page 123. Um, but I was still trying to develop, you know, some soul. 
And so one of the things I did to become spiritually improved was I would um, shop at progressive grocery stores like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods where the cashiers look like they're on loan from Amnesty International. Uh, my favorite section, I've sold this joke before, is they, uh, they, the snack food section, they couldn't have pretzels and potato chips, that would be vulgar. Uh, they, so they have these seaweed-based snacks. We used to get veggie booty with kale, which is for families who want, who, or kids who come home and say, Mom, Mom, I want a snack that'll help prevent colorectal cancer. And, uh, and that's for them. And so you try these lame things uh, to be spiritually sophisticated. But spiritual elevation comes at the strangest moments. Uh, and it came for me uh, about 10 years ago. I had one of those moments. I do a show on Friday nights uh, called The News Hour with Jim Lehrer. Thank you. Uh, and I do it with a guy named Mark Shields. Our, our segment, it's Shields and Brooks. Uh, we want to call it Brooks Shields. That would have been better, but they didn't go for that. Uh, it's Shields and Brooks. Before me, it was Shields and, Ger or Shields and Chigo, Shields and Gergen, Shields and Calvin Coolidge, uh, Shields and, I think, Plato, it started out as. Um, but I, I came home, it was about 10 years ago, and I was living in Bethesda, Maryland, and it was about 7.30 at night, and I drive into my driveway, which sort of wrapped around the house. And my three kids, who were then like 12, 9, and 4, were in the backyard, and they had one of these supermarket balls. Uh, and they were kicking it up in the air, this plastic ball, and they were chasing across the yard to get to the ball, and they were tumbling all over each other, and they were laughing, and they were giggling, and just putting a pile of kids on top of a ball. So I pull into the driveway, and I see this tableau, all parents have seen it, of just perfect family happiness. And I just sit there in the car looking at it through the windshield. And it's one of those moments when life and time feel like they're suspended. And I had a feeling of being overwhelmed with gratitude. Reality sort of spits, spills outside its boundaries. You've experienced a joy that's greater than anything you ever feel at work. Uh, and you, you, you're sort of alerted to higher joy. And you want to be worthy of such moments. And that's a moment where gratitude and really grace, unmerited love, lifts you up and inspires you to try to be higher. I uh, get those moments sometimes with those, with those kinds of experiences, and sometimes I get it when I meet somebody who radiates an inner light. You meet these people about every 30 days or so, or maybe more often if you're lucky, where they just radiate an inner light. I was saying the other day that one of the people I, I met uh, at a Washington function of all places was the Dalai Lama, and he just radiates that light. He's the sort of person who laughs for no apparent reason. And so he starts laughing. And then I, I'm sitting next to him, and I want to be polite, so I start laughing. And he laughs, and I laugh. And like, I feel I should insert a joke just to justify the laughter. And the one thing I said was that I was nervous. So I, he has a little canvas Dalai Lama bag. So I said, you got any candy in your bag? And so he starts pulling out what's in the bag. And it's everything you get in the first class cabin of an international flight. <laughs> It's like the earplugs, the eye patch, little razor, Toblerone bar. But when you're around people like that, you think, or at least I think, you know, I've achieved way more career success than I ever thought I would. But that inner light, the ability to glow with joy and grace, that I don't have. And how do you get that? There's a Catholic writer named Robert Spitzer who reminds us there are four levels of happiness. There's material pleasure, having good food, Nice clothing, good sex, beautiful car. There's ego comparative pleasure. 
winning status and popularity, being a success in the marketplace, getting a little famous maybe. Third, there's generativity, the pleasure you get from contributing to others, serving a community, helping the poor. And fourth and finally, there's transcendence. And this is the highest level of joy and happiness, an awareness that comes from knowing one's place in the cosmic order, a connection to a love that goes beyond the physical realm, a feeling of connection to an unconditional truth, an unconditional love, a political ideal, justice, goodness, beauty, and home. And getting one and two are easy, we're all sort of wired for that. Getting three and four are harder. And so I had written this book a few years ago on how do you move from level one and two to level three and four. And I didn't know if I could do it, but I wanted to read about people who did. And I wanted to study those people. So I wrote a book, and I, the distinction it was called The Road to Character, and the distinction at the beginning, beginning of the book was between the eulogy and the resume virtues. The resume things are the make you good at your job. The eulogy virtues are those, the, the things they say about you after you're dead. Are you honorable, courageous, brave, capable of great love? And I quoted a rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik, who said, we are both these sides of our nature. And they're sometimes in tension. And so I wanted to know how did people, and the characters in my book were all kind of pathetic uh, at age 20. They were not made great, but they were magnificent by age 70. They did something special with their lives to improve their souls. And so I want to know what was that. And the core theme of the book was that it's uh, the inner drama against our own weaknesses. That we each have a sin, whether it's vanity or greed or fear. And how we fight against that sin is what determines the quality of our character. And so we all should sit down and think, what is my core sin? Mine is shallowness, by the way. Uh, and uh, so one of the characters, for example, in the book was Dwight Eisenhower. When Eisenhower was seven or nine, something like that, he wanted to go out trick-or-treating. His mom, this amazing woman named Ida, wouldn't let him. And uh, he threw a temper tantrum and punched the tree in the front yard, and he punched it so bad he rubbed all the skin off his fingers. And Ida sent him to his room, let him cry for an hour, but then went up to bound it, bind his wounds and recited a verse from Proverbs. And the verse was, he that he who conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. And 60 years later, when Eisenhower wrote his memoirs, he said that was the most important conversation of his life because he taught him he had a problem, which was his anger and his passion and his temper. And if he was going to make anything of himself, he would have to confront that problem. And he really did. We think of him as the most garrulous country club kind of guy. That was creation. He, during the, during the, Revo the World War II, I'm going to pick the right war, uh, and during... Um, the presidency, at night, he was up at night, not sleeping, smoking, drinking, throat cancer, blood pressure spikes. But he knew he could not lead from that position of anger. And so he had to project com confidence, optimism, and cheerfulness. And he did that as an act of will and practice. Some of his devices were silly. He was a hater. He would hate people. So he'd write their names on pieces of paper and rip them up and throw them in the garbage can just as a purging device. And that was my main thesis in the book. But there are some things you recognize a book after it comes out. And one of the things I recognized about my characters is they all had amazing mothers. And I didn't realize when I was writing the book, their dads were eh, but the moms were amazing. <laughs> and I came across a study just a couple weeks ago of soldiers in World War II. And the soldiers, uh, they, all these guys got drafted in the army in World War II. But some of them were, rose and were promoted up to major. Some stayed at low ranks or private or something. So what factor 
determined or correlated with getting promoted? Was it IQ? No, no correlation. Was it social status? No correlation. Was it physical courage? No correlation. The number one correlation between getting promoted was love of mother. The guys with amazing relationships with their moms had received vast bucketfuls of love and were able to offer that love to their men. And they became good officers. And so that was one thing I, um, I realized about my characters. They all had amazing moms. And they were infused with love. The second thing is they were capable of making amazing commitments. And my book was too individualistic. When you look at the characters from a little further back, they were all capable of really connecting and attaching deeply to institutions outside themselves. One of my characters was Dorothy Day, um, and she was, a, I always say about her, she was the sort of person she would read novels, but she couldn't just read them. She acted out the characters. She acted like the characters she was reading about, and unfortunately, she read a lot of Dostoevsky. Uh, and so she's like drinking, carousing, living in poverty. But her life was turned around when she was about 30 when she gave birth to her daughter. And she realized during pregnancy all the accounts of childbearing she'd ever read were written by men. And so 40 minutes after the birth of her daughter, she wrote one. It's a very beautiful essay. But it culminates with this passage. If I had written the greatest book, composed the greatest symphony, painted the most beautiful painting, or carved the most exquisite figure, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. No human creature could receive or contain so vast a flood of love and joy as I felt after the birth of my child. With this came a need to worship and to adore. She needed somebody to thank. She found God at that moment. She became a Catholic. She started a Catholic worker newspaper. She started a homeless shelter, a soup kitchen, and spent the next 60 years of her life not only serving the poor, but living a life of poverty in the poor, in amongst the poor. And just a long commitment, a long obedience in the same direction for 60 years. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, New York Times columnist David Brooks. He's on stage at the Ideas Festival speaking about a life well lived. Another of my characters was a woman named Frances Perkins. She was having tea in 1913 in Lower Manhattan. She hears a commotion. She runs outside. She stumbled across one of the most famous fires in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. She runs up to it, and she sees what she thinks are bundles of clothing being thrown out of the 10th floor window. But it's like 9-11, human beings are leaping to their death rather than being burned to death. And she sees a guy hoist seamstresses across the windowsill and drop them into space. He does a first, a second, a third. His fourth is his girlfriend, who he kisses and drops her, and then he goes. And that was what you might call her call within a call. She was already sort of a do-gooder, an activist, but that moment purified her ambition to do good. And she, she would work with anybody, compromise with anybody. She had a fierce ambition to serve the cause of worker safety and spent the next 50 years of her life serving that cause, culminating in Secretary of Labor under Franklin Roosevelt, the first woman in the cabinet. And so the people that I was writing about, they were not only combating something in themselves, they were committing and making a covenant to people around them, the kind of covenant that Ruth made to Naomi in the Bible. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so our inner natures are formed by our outer promises. 
And when you think about it, life is just a forum for promise-making. There are obvious promises we make at a marriage ceremony. We promise to love and serve our spouse. But there are silent promises that pervade life. Even me standing up here, I'm making a promise to you that I'm going to do my best to give you an interesting talk. When you go to a dinner party, you're making a promise to be civil, kind, and attentive to your host. We are constantly making promises to each other. And it's our promises that define us. Hannah Arendt wrote, without being bound to the fulfillment of our promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of each person's lonely heart, caught in its contradictions and equivocalities. So since the book came out, I've been thinking a lot about promises and commitments. Uh, what is a commitment? Well, it is a form of promising, but it's a little more. Making a commitment means falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. Because our commitments really stretch long into time. And it's not always fun to keep a commitment, but you keep it because you've built a structure of behavior around it. And I came to the conclusion that to live a fulfilled life, we make four big commitments. To a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and to a community. Now, only one of these commitments comes with a big ceremony at the beginning, the marriage. But in some sense, we are making a commitment and having a ceremony in honor of all those commitments. We happen to live in a community that makes commitment-making hard. We live in a society filled with decommitment devices, the internet, our watches, our phones. How do you make a lifelong commitment if you can't keep your attention for more than 30 seconds on one thing? We have a culture, and I teach in college, we have a culture of FOMO, fear of missing out. If you commit to one thing, you'll miss all the other goodies down the road. We have a culture of fear. I know a lot of people who are paralyzed by indecision because they're afraid of making the wrong commitment. We have a culture of autonomy, that we should be self-contained creatures, true to our inner selves. And we also have a false definition of freedom. We think freedom is keeping options open, living in a life that's unencumbered and preserving room for future choices. But to me, that's, I found in my life, that's a recipe for befrazzlement, a state of being harried, multitasking distraction that a lot of us live in a lot of the time. And one of the things I've really thought in the last few weeks is that if you spend your years keeping your options open, you'll leave an impotent, fragmented life. You'll wander about in the indeterminacy of your own passing feelings and changeable heart. Life will just be a series of temporary moments, not an accumulating building flow of accomplishments. You'll never be all in for anyone or any path because your eyes will always be wandering over to some other possibility. You'll lay waste to your powers, scattering them in all directions. And the effect of having a lot of people like that, we have a fragmented and isolated society. When many people live a life where arm's length to their commitments, we have loneliness and public fragmentation, polarization in our politics. You contribute to social isolation that we see around us which leads to rising suicide, addiction rates, rising mental illness, greater inequality, falling social trust, strained family bonds, and a loss of national cohesion. So when you think about it, to make commitments in this culture, you have to buck the surrounding culture. You have to be a little countercultural. And you go after, have to go after the higher freedom that comes when you've chained yourself to a political cause or a cultural cause or a group of people or a philosophy or faith. It's our restraints that liberate us for a higher freedom. You have to chain yourself to years of piano practice if you have, want to have the freedom to really play well. As the pastor Tim Keller puts it, 
Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about commitment making. How does it happen? How do you make commitments? And when you make a commitment, whether it's to a philosophy, to a faith, going to med school, joining the Marine Corps, entering nursing school, it's super hard because you're binding yourself for years into the future. And you've got to know what you really love, which is a very difficult thing to know. And not only that, you've got to know what your future self is going to love. Philosophers have a concept they call the vampire problem. So, so suppose somebody came to you and said, would you like to be a vampire for the rest of your life? You could fly around at night, you could live forever, you'd have all these magical powers, be cool. Uh, well, you might think maybe, but the problem is you as your human self don't know what it'll feel like to be a vampire self. The act of making that decision is going to change who you are. And so we have a lot of decisions we make in life that are vampire decisions. For example, having kids. Having kids will change who you are. So the decision to have kids, you're as your private, your single parent, childless self, trying to imagine who will I be as a parent? You have no way of knowing. Joining the military will change who you are. Getting married will change who you are. You have to take all these blind leaps of faith. And you can't think through that problem because you have no actual information about what the future is going to hold for you. So how do you make that kind of commitment? Well, there are two big motivators that help people make commitments. One of them is love. You just fall in love with something. Whether it's an academic discipline or a person or a god. Now, the first thing love does is humbles us. It reminds us we're not even in control of ourselves. You can't control your own thinking when you're in love. When you look across the crowd, you think you see your beloved there sitting there. The second thing love does is it plows open hard ground. It opens up the crust of our lives that we've used to cover over ourselves, exposing soft flesh below. Uh, and it makes us more uh, liable to be, suffer deep pain, but also deep joy. The third, love, third thing love does is it decenters the self. You realize your riches are not in yourself, they're in another person. And the final thing does is it leads to unity, to a sort of fusion unity between two people. There's a great passage in, in a book called Captain Corelli's Mandolin by Louis de Bernier. And an old guy is talking to his daughter, and he's, his, he's talking about his relationship with his late wife. And he says, love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. And that's a fusion, and that's a commitment. When one thing has become fused with another. Now that's the first passion of love leading to the deep fusion of souls. And we, we write and have a lot of songs, and Taylor Swift sings a lot of songs about the first passion of love. But a commitment is over time. And philosophers have a concept they call the second love. And this is the love that happens deep into a relationship. After each side has been bruised a little, knows each other a little better, disillusioned with each other. And there's a man who's at this conference who wrote a beautiful description of this second love. His name is Leon Weaseltier. I saw him over by the Meadows earlier today. And he gave a toast to a couple friends of mine at their wedding, which described the second love. This kind of love, he wrote, is private and it is particular. Its object is the specificity of this man and that woman, 
the distinctiveness of this spirit and that flesh. This love prefers deep to wide and here to there, the grasp to the reach. When the day is done and the lights are out, there is only this other heart, this other mind, this other face to assist in repelling one's demons or in greeting one's angels. It does not matter who the president is. When one consents to marry, one consents to be truly known, which is an ominous prospect. And so one bets on love to correct for the ordinariness of the impression and to call forth the forgiveness that is invariably required by an accurate perception of oneself. Marriages are exposures. We may be heroes to our spouses, but we may not be idols. And that's just a beautiful description of how love deepens and fuses people. And like St. Augustine 1600 years ago, I'm a big believer that we're primary loving creatures, we're not cognitive thinking creatures. Our feelings are more important. And so love is the first thing that motivates us to make these big commitments in these four areas. But it's not just love. We also want our commitments to be morally validated. We're all born with a moral imagination. We have moral sentiments. We, uh, Kant said we, have, we all feel the innate urge to pursue our highest good. We want to feel our life has some meaning and yearning. We almost, it's weird in our, in our language. We don't really have a word for this. Moral ambition, moral imagination, moral yearning. Uh, the Greeks had a word for it, which was eros, but we've screwed up that word, so now it refers to sex. And so different writers have tried different words for, to suggest that moral hunger that we feel to have a life of meaning and purpose and be good people. Uh, Dorothy Day, who I mentioned before, called it loneliness, a longing for God or goodness or holiness. C.S. Lewis called it joy. Joy was not the completion of desire, but the highest possible form of desire. And so we burn with sort of a spiritual hunger, and if we don't feel it, we end up dry, unsatisfied, twisted, and self-loathing. And the image that has come into my head about that moral yearning is that it's like, it's not there all the time. And so it's like um, there's a part of our souls that's like a reclusive leopard. And this is the part that doesn't care about money or status or Facebook likes or everyday things. And the leopard is the part that inside us that yearns for transcendence, that some feeling of connection to unconditional love, some feeling connected to justice. And for long periods of our lives, especially young and in our 20s when we're working and trying to build a career, the leopard is high in the forest mountains. You might get a glimpse of him out of the corner of your eye, just off in the distance trailing you through the tree trunks. And there are spare moments when you vaguely or even urgently feel his presence. This could happen agonizingly during one of those long, sleepless, maybe guilt-ridden nights, when your thoughts come, as a, a great poet named Christian Wyman put it, like a drawer full of knives. And the, or the leopards can visit like it did me that in my backyard during one of those fantastic moments with friends and family, when you look out at laughing faces of the people you love and you're overwhelmed by gratitude. And then, too, you feel a spiritual uplift. The leopard can come during moments of suffering when you're forced to peer into the deepest cavities of yourself and you want to know how that's connected, the moments of suffering, to some longer story of redemption. And then there are moments, and a lot of us are middle-aged or beyond, which I think are inevitable in every life, but maybe toward middle, more toward middle or older age, when the leopard comes out of the hills and he just sits there in the middle of your doorframe and he stares at you inescapably eye-to-eye, face-to-face, implacable and unmoving, and demand some justification. What's your purpose here? Why were you sent here? What's your mission? And at those moments, 
There are no excuses. Everybody has to let down the mask. And you have to think, am I really serving my highest good? I think we all face those moments sooner or later. And those who have no answers and who have given the question no thought die knowing that and trying to suppress that knowledge in some awful way. But most of us try and try to do our best. And the weird thing about fulfilling the leopard's hunger, trying to be our best selves, is you've got to break out of the normal logic of life. Normally, when you buy a car, you buy a couch, you buy some food, you have a normal self-interested utilitarian logic. You know, is this in my best self-interest? Do the benefits exceed the cost? Is this best for me? Does this work? Does it meet my needs? But when you're making a commitment to something, whether it's a spouse or a religion or a cause, those questions are the worst questions you can ask. Imagine going into a marriage and asking the question, what's best for me? If both sides are asking that, don't bet on the marriage. Imagine finding a faith and saying, does this serve my needs? That's not a faith, that's just opportunism. Imagine serving a cause like the civil rights cause and saying, is this working for me? Nobody marches across the Selma Bridge if it's working for them, because there are a lot of moments when it's not working for you. So you have to adopt a different lens, a moral lens, which is beyond rationality, which takes you beyond utilitarian thinking when you have to just throw it all in. People who adopt a moral lens are looking for ways to forget themselves, surrender themselves, throw themselves into something without counting the cost. They understand, if only by instinct, that their true joy is found on the distant side of unselfishness and not on this side. People who ask, use a moral lens don't ask, what do I want from life? They ask, what is life asking of me? Frances Perkins was not saying, what's my passion, when she was standing on a street corner. There was this problem 10 floors above her, and that became her life mission. And people who see through a moral lens have a different view of marriage. They don't ask, is this person right for me? They ask, can I love her in a way that brings out her loveliness? Can we take our private practice and direct it outward? Can, we, can I go through every day assuming that my own selfishness is the core problem in our relationship? We have a tendency when we're in relationships to think the other person's selfishness is actually the core problem, but ours is the only one we can control. And so I think we, people stick with their commitments, both because they're just in love, which is fun, and they have some yearning, a yearning to be a good person, and they'll do amazing things driven by these two motivations. But a commitment isn't just um, motivation. A commitment is also discipline. Because we're doing our commitments over a long period of time when a lot of the moments are not magical. There are a lot of teachers I know who go through years where they're putting more into their profession than they're getting out of it. But they can't quit because they are teachers. That's their identity. And so it's sort of like ordered energy. And so then I began thinking, what disciplines a commitment? It's not just gushy love or your vague yearning. It's tough and realistic. And I think the first thing that disciplines a commitment is, is um, truth the ability to see truth. Uh, and that seems like an obvious thing we can all look at and see, but not everybody actually sees the world clearly. I cover politics, and people don't see the world clearly. John Ruskin, a Victorian art critic, wrote, the more I think of it, the more I find this conclusion more oppressed upon me, that the greatest thing a human soul ever does is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds of people can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. 
And that ability to see clearly is a very hard skill to learn, and I think we learn it formally in our educational institutions by a scientific method, mathematical method, or sometimes just reading great writers who have the ability to see. One of my favorite writers, my favorite writer is Leo Tolstoy, and my favorite book is Anna Karenina. And there's a scene in that novel where he describes this girl, Kitty, going to a ball. And Kitty is like 17, and Tolstoy, who's like a middle-aged guy, somehow describes what it feels like for a young woman when her hair looks perfect. She puts on a dress and it just fits perfectly. She puts on a velvet choker and it fits perfectly. So he describes what it's like to just have it all going on. And then she goes to the ball and she's the belle of the ball. And everybody's asking her to dance and all eyes are upon her and she's being whirled around and she sees the guy she wants to marry, a guy named Vronsky. Uh, and she thinks he's going to ask her to the final dance and propose during that dance. And she's being whirled around by somebody else and she sees Vronsky and he's got this look of rapturous love on his face. And she whirls around some more and she sees Vronsky with that look of rapturous love, but he's not looking at her, he's looking at Anna Karenina. And Tolstoy describes again with great clarity what it feels like to have her whole insides implode. Uh, and to be, go from the highest high to the lowest low. And he describes it all with crystalline purity. And he describes Vronsky, by the way, looking at Anna Karenina, a married woman, thinking, I can't help myself. This is going to kill me. I can't stop myself. I love her. And he does, of course. And Tolstoy's ability is just a sensitivity to observe carefully and to see the world carefully, how things flow. And I think to have a commitment and to carry it through, you have to be uber-realistic and be able to see the world. And that commitment to truth is really what keeps people sort of on track and from being captured by their own self-delusions. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author, New York Times columnist, and political commentator David Brooks is our featured speaker. If you like today's show, check out Secrets of the Creative Brain with Tom Kelly and Nancy Andreessen. You'll hear about people who doubted their creativity but overcame fear to go on to do highly creative things. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go in iTunes. Our show is also available on the NPR One app. Now, back to David Brooks. The second thing I think it's a commitment is disciplined is by craft. We all have certain professions which all have sort of institutional disciplines imposed upon us. Musicians have to play scales. Surgeons have to lay out their tools. I happen to be a newspaper columnist. Uh, and I, I told a group in this tent yesterday that I have my own craft of writing has its own disciplines. I, I have a, a very bad memory. And so what I do is I take notes, uh, hundreds of notes for each column, and I usually get about 200 pages of research material, which I write up and mark up. And then the morning my column is due, I get out on the carpet on the floor of my living room, and I separate all my notes and papers into piles. And each pile is a paragraph in my column. So my column is only 800 words, but there'll be 14 piles on the floor. And so for me, the writing process is not the act of typing into the keyboard, it's the act of crawling around on the carpet and laying out my piles. 
And there are moments when connections are being made and it's all beginning to make sense and ideas are popping into my head where it's the best part of my job. It's almost like prayer. And so that is the craft of my profession, having to structure and organize a piece of writing and getting it done every three days. But we all are disciplined by our craft and by our, the certain commitments we do. And then the third and final thing that I think disciplines our commitments is community. We all live surrounded by others. And fortunately, we're, up, we're responsible to, toward them. We have to, they, the eyes of others insist on certain standards of behavior. They prevent us a little from doing wrong, and sometimes they lift us uh, up to doing well. I have a friend who lives in northern Louisiana named Rod Dreer, and he lives in a really small town somewhere up north, uh, and he had a sister named Ruthie uh, who was a teacher, and she was one of those people who just radiated inner joy. And unfortunately, Ruthie died when she was in her 40s, and though the town probably had like 600 people in it, something like 1,500 came out to her funeral. Uh, and she was a, a woman who hated to wear shoes, so she would go barefoot all the time, and her husband was a fireman, and the fireman carried her casket to the gravesite uh, barefoot. And one of the things Ruthie did in service to her community was uh, on Christmas Eve, she wanted the dead to be remembered. And so she'd go to the town cemetery, and on top of each gravestone, she would put a lit candle. And she happened to die just before Christmas, and... Um, Rod was sitting with his mom in their house, uh, and he said on Christmas Eve to her, should we do what Ruthie used to do, and put candles on the gravestones? Uh, and his mom said, you know, in future years, I think I could do that, but right now, it's just too tough. It's just a little too tough. Um, and uh, so they didn't do it, but they drove to another family, another member of their family, and they drove across town, and they happened to pass the cemetery and somebody else had put a candles on every gravestone. And so that's an example of a community picking up itself. One member of the community passing something on, a standard of behavior. And so I think these are the things that organize our commitments, drive our commitments, discipline our commitments. And the people who, somebody said to me earlier in the festival, think of a wagon wheel. Every time you keep a promise, you add another spike, a spoke to that wagon wheel, and you increase the integrity of the whole wheel. Every time you break a promise, you take away a spoke and you decrease the integrity of the wheel. Well, somebody has full, rich, four big commitments, they've got integrity. It's an emergent property out of these commitments. They're surrounded by webs of unconditional love. And I do think the inner joy radiates from that. One of my favorite passages in literature is uh, in St. Augustine's Confessions. And Augustine was born in North Africa 1,500, 1,600 years ago, and he had a mom named Monica who was the helicopter mom to beat all helicopter moms. And so she was telling Augustine who to, who to befriend, who not to befriend, who to marry him, who not to marry, who to think, what to think, what not to think. And they had intense conflict. And so he decided that he had a family, he was in his 30s, he decided I gotta get away from mom. So he sneaks onto a boat, heads for Italy, the boat's leaving and he sees her on the shore screaming at him. She gets on the next boat, tracks him down in Italy. And then, but then at the end of her life, um, they're still in Italy. Um, she says to him, I think she's 59. Uh, she says to him, you know, I've been on you all your life, but I really only wanted you to be a certain sort of man and a certain sort of Christian. And now you are that kind of person. And so my work here is done. 
uh, and uh, I'm ready to go. I thought I wanted to go back in Africa, but God is everywhere, he'll find me. And she does in fact die nine days later. And Augustine describes their final conversation, which takes place in a garden. And after a life of conflict and screaming and fighting, he describes it as the sweetest of all possible conversations that rises above material things into the realm of pure spirit. And then he has a long sentence, uh, and it is very hard to understand. But it's got one word throughout it, and that word is hushed. And so he says, the voices, uh, our voices were hushed, the birds in the trees were hushed, the wind was in the trees was hushed, and it just keeps going on, hushed, hushed, hushed. And you get this sense of deep tranquility and peace, or shalom as it says in Hebrew. And you, you really get the sense that of somebody who strongly committed himself, them to each other, him to his faith, him to his mission, some of the yearning going away and just being satisfied. And that I think is one of the dreams of peace and tranquility we long for in our lives. The second thing that I think a deep commitment can do is give you that sense of meaning which can help you endure anything. I hope a lot of the people in this room uh, has, uh, have read uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a psychologist in the 30s in Germany, or in Austria, and he was captured by the Nazis. They sent him to concentration camp. And he said, you know, this wasn't what the life I was looking for, but this is what life is asking me. And he decided, I'm a psychologist, I'm in a concentration camp, I'll study suffering. And he said suffering became a problem I did not want to turn my back on. And so he suffered suffering, but he counseled a lot of the people in there. And he tried to figure out who was surviving the camps and who wasn't. And a lot of the people who survived thought every day about their loved ones who were outside the camps and spoke to them. One of Frankl's friends said to him one day, listen, if I don't get back to my wife, and if you should see her again, then tell her that I talked of her daily and hourly. You remember that. Second, tell her I loved her more than anyone. Thirdly, tell her the short time I've been married to her outweighs everything, even all that we have gone through here. And it was that ability to focus on some ideal and some person and keep that commitment alive that kept the people alive. And then he met a young woman who was sick and dying in a bed. And he went up to her and she said, I'm grateful fate has hit me this hard. In my former life, I was spoiled and I did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. But in the camp, she'd made a commitment. She was super sick, she was in a bed, and her commitment was to the only living thing she could see from the bed which was a tree outside the window. And she told Frankel, this tree is the only friend I have in my loneliness. I often talk to this tree. And Frankel asked her if the tree ever talked back to her. And she said, yeah, the tree says to me, I am here, I am here, I'm life, I'm eternal life. And so what you see is a commitment which is the ultimate commitment to something beyond the physical realm a commitment to some eternal peace, eternal presence, eternal truth. And so I think these are the sorts of things, if we keep our commitments, you, at the end of the road, you get these kind of tranquility, these kind of connection to something transcendent, that level four of happiness. Now I wanted to close um, by talking about our vice president, if you'll allow me. I got to spend a little time with him this afternoon, it was off the record, so I can't tell you what we said, uh, but I love interviewing Joe Biden. Uh, 
because he is a man of intense loyalty and commitments to family, to the Senate, to the state of Delaware, and to pretty much everyone he runs into. And one of the things I'm like the worst journalist in the world, when I get the chance to meet with the vice president, I probably should be asking about Syria or something like that. But one of the things I've tried to do in a, the few occasions where we've had a chance to spend time together is asking about his, his mom and dad because he was raised with all these maxims and rules of etiquette and politeness uh, that really are the formation, the way a family forms a commitment and a code of character and a code of dignity. And one of the things I've always been struck by in his campaign speeches is by how often he quotes family members, especially parents. And when you hear the, frankly, his parents, the dead, living on in his speeches, you're reminded the ultimate payoff of a commitment. That if you are emotionally bonded, that your voice lingers on long after you're gone. And I have a passage I'll close with by a uh, mathematician from Indiana University named Douglas Hofstetter. Uh, and his is about the ultimate form of union between two people, which is almost a union within brains. Uh, and he was in Italy when his kids were four and two. And he had a, uh, a wife uh, who, unfortunately, when she was in her 30s, uh, died of a brain aneurysm. And he would keep a picture of her on the uh, dresser that he looked at every day. But some days, and one particular day, he looked at it with particular intensity. And here's what he wrote about that moment. I looked at her face, and I looked so deeply, I felt I was behind her eyes. And all at once I found myself saying as tears flowed, that's me, that's me. And those simple words brought back many thoughts that I had had before about the fusion of our souls into one higher level entity, about the fact that at the core of both our souls lay our identical hopes and dreams for our children, about the notion that those hopes were not separate or distinct hopes, but were just one hope, one clear thing that defines us both that welded us into a unit, the kind of unit I would have dimly imagined before being married and having children. I realized that though Carol had died, that core piece of her had not died at all, but it had remained and lived on very determinedly in my brain. And that, the first book I wrote a year ago was so individualistic, but when you see people as they actually live, they are fusing so determinedly through commitments into each other's brains and living forever. Thank you. David Brooks is an author, political commentator for the PBS NewsHour, and columnist for the New York Times. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.